0: Seriously Balkans, the BIPAC Talks, your in-depth analysis and discussion of current events in the Western Balkans.
1: Welcome to the second episode of Seriously Balkans, the BIPAC Talks. Today's episode will be hosted by myself, Florian Bieber, Tena Prelets and Damir Kapidzic. Hi,
2: I'm Damir, and I'm an Associate Professor of Comparative Politics at the University of Sarajevo and a member of BiAPAC.
3: Today's episode is going to look into two very sensitive topics, but also very important ones. In the first segment, we'll tackle the mass shootings in Serbia, as well as the social and political implications of these events. And we'll then pass on to look at two recent works, which look at the issue of foreign
0: fighters going to Ukraine. Seriously, Balkans. The Biopod Talks.
2: On May 3rd, 2023, a 13-year-old male student opened fire on fellow students and staff at the Vladislav Ribnikar Elementary School in Belgrade. He killed seven girls, a boy, and a school guard, and wounded seven more. The police arrested the shooter after he called himself in. One day later, a 20-year-old man fired randomly in the villages of Malo Orasje and Dubona in rural central Serbia. He killed eight people, among them a young off-duty police officer and his sister, and injured 14 more. Even with its history of war and violence, mass shootings are very rare in Balkan countries. Two of them in short succession, one of which included children as shooters and victims, is unheard of. This is a difficult and emotional topic to cover. We understand that in this podcast we cannot do justice to the suffering of victims and survivors, nor convey the complexity of causes that lie behind the crimes. We do, however, want to draw attention to the need for an open discussion on the topic within Balkan societies and between people and their elected representatives. Joining us today are Serjan Svić. Serjan is president of the International Advisory Committee of the Belgrade Center for Security Policy and organizer of the Belgrade Security Conference. He is a member of Biapak. With us also is Ilya Vojnovic, whose child attends the Rebnikar Elementary School in Belgrade, where the shooting happened. Serjan, can you start us off and give us some context? What happened on May 3rd in Belgrade?
4: Thank you, Dalmir. Um, Two things happened. First, the cover of the pressure cooker boiling for over a decade exploded off. 10 years of the promotion of violence in government-affiliated media in Serbia by the regime of Aleksandr Vucic saw its tragic consequence. And second, the regime in the country gave us yet another and probably worse display of incompetence. Uh, Serbian regime denied any responsibility whatsoever for the tragic massacre in the primary school Vladislav Ribnikar They blame the Western culture, video games, but not the way in which they're governing the country for the last 10 years. What about the
2: May 4th shootings in central Serbia? Um, Is there any connection between the two?
4: What we have here is a classic case of contagion of violence. Uh, These are instances where violent acts repeat after the initial act took place, sometimes two, three, four weeks after. When reporting on the first incident, government and institutional representatives described in minutious details what happened in the primary school, Vladislav Ribnik. This is not normally done. It is known in crime prevention literature that one should not report, at least not immediately, on the details from the crime scene, what the attacker did, what he didn't do, whom did he shoot first, and so on. Like this, as if they offered a roadmap that inspires future attacks. You and I, Damir, will not take a gun, which we don't have, and go and do the same thing as the attacker. For us, uh, this is not a trigger. But for similar people like the underage killer from the primary school, Vladislav Ribnikar, of the second mass shooting, yes. The second shooter was already known for aggressive pestering behavior against his neighbors. And he probably got inspired by the first case.
2: How does this compare to other shootings in the region i mean are people accustomed to this sort of violence in balkan countries
4: well no no i mean you said it rightly in the introduction these instances are very rare in contemporary serbia we had two other instances of mass shootings Uh, the jabukovic killings from 2007 where a seasonal agricultural worker from in austria killed nine people and wounded five in his native village in eastern Serbia. And then we had the second mass shooting incidents in 2013 in Velika Ivanca, where a local villager killed himself and 13 of his relatives and neighbors. And although mass shootings, uh, to these two incidents are probably more similar to numerous instances of domestic violence, femicide of which we have a real plague in Serbia in the last decade. Then uh, the two incidents that occurred last week. Uh, uh, the other incidents, 2007 and 2013, were all committed amongst the close circle of family or neighbors in a village.
2: So given this new form of random violence, one could say, is it understandable why the events in Belgrade, Maloroš and Dubona upset the public in Serbia to this extent?
4: Well, uh, absolutely. Uh, these uh, hits deep down, really. Uh, especially the primary school, Vladislav Rybni shooting, both because the victims were mainly children, but also for Belgraders, uh, because of a lot of us uh, either know directly the parents of someone who was murdered or their friends. My mother, who on numerous occasions in the early eighties left me and picked me up at the same school door of Vladislav Rivnikar, because I did attend this primary school where the murderer was taken out uh, from by the police officers after being arrested, remained speechless, crying for days. Um, What was once a place for joy and learning became a theater for sorrow.
3: Ilya, let's turn to you now. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. As a parent of a child who attends uh, the school where the shooting happened, uh, that must have been a really, really difficult date for you. Could you tell us what uh, happened when you heard that something was wrong at the school?
5: Well, uh, I guess uh, through the most common communication channel these days, uh, our parents' message group, uh, we received some uh, first unclear information about the shooting in our school and that the guard uh, whom, by the way, parents and children called uh, our dragon, Nash dragon, had been shot. So um, quickly, unfortunately, after that, we learned about the children, uh, the Rybnikar children. And of course, uh, there was a period of a uh, eerily quiet message group uh, with occasional messages of, of course, disbelief and and prayers.
3: Could you tell us what was uh, your own reaction from a personal standpoint and maybe from a wider standpoint too? I mean, I saw that you, you tweeted, it's impossible that there is one parent uh, who at this moment says to himself, yes, I believe that this is the government that does everything our country can do to keep our children safe. Could you take us a bit through your thoughts and um, and how that resonated with you?
5: Well, to be very frank, uh, at that very moment, I wasn't thinking about much at the first instant, I wasn't thinking about much more other than checking that my child was, was okay. Uh, and that was my immediate reaction. I mean, fortunately he was safe, but Obviously, that initial spasm in the chest that I felt when I heard the news uh, was relieved somewhat by learning that my child was okay. But another one kicked in very quickly uh, with the thought that some other children, but still our our Rydnicka children, were were also shot. Uh, To be very frank, at that very moment, I didn't feel like there was much comfort or direction to look at in In the direction of of the government and the authorities, um, so my first feeling was that we are kind of in this on our uh, on our own
3: and could you tell us how it resonated with the other group of uh, parents? Uh, was there any communication uh, among you um, as a group? what were the various reactions and uh, um, are there already efforts being made to come together and overcome this trauma
5: well I think the magnitude of this tragedy is something that I believe uh, caused the crack in all of us, you know, directly or somewhat directly affected, but also, of course, in the wider public. Uh, it's one of those things that uh, even the expert community, I don't think is always agreeing on potential long-term consequences of it. So, of course, from individual psychological to, uh, you know, wider social impact, it's, it's very hard, I think, to understand how this level of really unimaginable, I would say, materialization of evil uh, by ending the most innocent lives would, would eventually affect all of us. And um, I, and I believe many of parents now feel, uh, what what we feel now is a mix of, of strong emotions, you know, ranging from anger, fear, deep sadness and desperation. But I do have to say also some signs of, of determination at this point uh, about the necessity to somehow to somehow continue with with life. Thank
3: you so much, Ilya. Uh, Serjan, let me ask you, so this materialization of evil that uh, Ilya just described to us, could you um, speak to us about the importance of communication within a society to address a tragedy like this? How would you describe the current form of communication within Serbia?
4: Ever since uh, Vucic's Serbian Progressive Party came to power in 2012, uh, government affiliated media, that by the way hold an absolute monopoly in the country, have been filled with hate speech and the promotion of violence. This has been present on one level through a constant daily drip of poisonous, anti Western, and nationalistic discourse, but on an internal level, and this is probably more relevant for the two cases of mass shootings, the culture of violence uh, promoted through government-affiliated TVs and tabloid press became the dominant in the society and went in pair with aggressive posture externally.
3: Would you be able to speak a bit about other forms of communication within society? Because obviously. The media and the role, perhaps you know how government connected they are, and so on, uh, is is front and center as you also also pointed out. Um, but at the same time, there were also people saying that we shouldn't, you know, it's the causes of this event are so complex that they need to be broken down, and uh, and sort of everybody carries a part of the blame. So could you help us understand how uh, this uh, narrative that is uh, propagated through the mass media, how perhaps it uh, uh, is then also discussed through other forms of communication. Do other forms of communication also play a role?
4: Yes, uh, there is even public opinion research confirming this. In December 2022, uh, Birodi, uh, which is a bureau for social research, a think tank from Serbia, published a report on the Serbia public opinion and the ways in which media shape it. The respondents had the opportunity to express their general views for example, on the use of war and violence as means. And when the answers as to which media they follow for information and the index of militarism uh, were cross-checked, the audiences of the pro-regime media, TV Happy, TV Pink, B92, uh, Press, Serbian Telegraph, Blitz, Informer, Kurir, had above half values of the index of militarism, meaning that uh, they were much higher in this index of militarism. The media are usually read and followed by those who are critical of the regime. Vremenin, Nova Est, and Danas audiences had the lowest militarism index. The only problem here is that Serbia is, as we know, not a democratic country, and most Serbs are forced to watch and read only pro-regime media. Uh, another research published roughly at the same time at the one, as the one that I already quoted uh, by CERTA, an electoral observation NGO, showed that 54% of the population watches TV stations with national coverage controlled by the regime, while the share of independent stations critical of Vucic's rule is, guess what, 2%. That means that two uh, percent, only two percent of household watches at any go- given moment in time, the critical, professional, and independent media.
2: Ilya, I would now switch back to you. I mean, given everything that we've heard and how violence is discussed in the public sphere in Serbia, can I ask you about how you discuss these events with your children? Is there a right way to do this?
5: Well. I think the most important thing to understand here now is that there are so many things involved in this tragedy uh, that I I genuinely think we cannot fully understand. Uh, I don't think there's one right way to do this, Uh, but I do think there are certain steps which, which immediately should be taken. So, for example, first and foremost, I think it's important for us to try and understand where our child is emotionally at the moment, and try to address that emotion, especially if it's too strong for the child to handle, whether it would be, uh, you know, fear or sadness or confusion. Uh, I actually have two sons. And one, as you mentioned, has been attending Ribnikar. And another went actually to Ribnikar a week before the tragedy to get tested for the first grade, which he's supposed to start in September. And uh, after the tragedy happened, uh, the younger one was telling me about the meeting uh, with the earlier mentioned school guard, uh, Nash Dragan, our Dragan, uh, and how Dragan was uh, trying to calm my son before his first grade testing because he was nervous. And right after that, my son told me that he also knows that Dragan is now gone. Uh, He's six. So this is something that nobody prepares a parent for. Uh, I was, of course, stunned, but I believe I somehow managed to have at least an honest conversation with with my boys. And I think that's the most important first step, you know, honesty and openness uh, adjusted to the level of the children's understanding and emotional state and then uh, continue to build this conversation, you know, step by step. Do you see a place
2: for schools, psychologists and other institutions to help families overcome this?
5: Well, first of all, I, I think we don't have any other choice as an individual or as a collective, but to move forward and uh, try to learn and adjust. Uh, one of the main changes that we have to make is to seriously understand the real strength in building strong local communities uh, around family ties, neighborhoods, but also, of course, our schools. And I do have to be honest here, unfortunately, because of a uh heavy centralization of power and decision making in Serbia's state institutions, of which we heard a little earlier, uh, with, of course, very questionable quality of, in my opinion, largely politicized cadre in these institutions, I have little faith that much of meaningful solutions would would actually come from there. Uh, so I genuinely think that we have to understand that there is no higher duty for all of us uh, to, who have to continue than to not allow that the, the You know, most innocent and most precious blood that was spilled just dries out without us trying to build something new and and bonding and beautiful out of it. I think we owe it to all of our children, uh, you know, the ones who stayed, but particularly the ones who are now gone. And building a new Rybnikar family would be a project that I, I definitely want to take part in. And I see it almost as my sacred duty now. Uh, we have to come together as the Ribbentinka community, above all at this time, and try to build something in a new and much more understanding way.
2: Thank you for these words, Ilya, and I, I cannot agree more. Taking this sort of a little bit broader, do you see a possibility to make these tragic events uh, into a moment of reckoning and learning for Serbian society?
5: I absolutely think we don't have any other choice but to do that. As I mentioned, I don't have much faith, of course, that this would ever come from the state institutions that should, should actually take a more active part in building something new. Um, but I do think that this is something that can and has to be started from bottom up in this case. And hopefully this will be, you know, a day of new awakening for our society and, and us as individuals.
2: Thank you again, Ilya. Sergeant, one last question to you. We have witnessed several reactions from government officials to the shootings. Um, There were calls for more small arms controls, decrease of personal weapons held. There were also mentions of reinstating capital punishment. Are these predictable and involuntary responses or are we really witnessing a more thorough securitization of public safety, especially when it comes to safety of youth? Yeah,
4: I mean, we already talked about this uh, what we witnessed is an almost total dereliction of duty by the officials uh, let me say something about small arm controls and seizure the presence of arms in a society and in serbia it is very high uh serbia is stopping the world ranks as we know uh, certainly doesn't facilitate things in this context but is by no means the main driver of these mass shootings in Serbia, legalization of arms in the possession of the population are, are regular occurrence. This means that this is when the citizens can return arms in their possession without bearing criminal responsibility for it. In 2003, for example, uh, after the assassination of our first democratic prime minister after Second World War, Zoran Jinjic, 82,000 pieces of weaponry were seized in a very short period of time. This was immediately after the bloody 1990s in which weapons uh, were widespread and was the highest number of legalizations and seizures ever. After this, uh, throughout the years, police regularly legalizes from 1,000 to 7,000, 8,000 weapons a year. So what the police is doing now after the mass shootings is not new. It's done regularly. And um, to speak about other things that you mentioned, instead of seriously assuming responsibility for what happened, the government offers populist slogans such as the reintroduction of the death penalty. The president himself, who proposed it, by the way, doesn't believe... Serbia, a member of the Council of Europe, can reintroduce that penalty, I'm sure of it. However, he does it to please and placate his right-wing base. As a result of this dereliction of responsibility on the part of the elected officials, a prevailing feeling of sadness and despair amongst the Serbian population uh, quickly transformed into public rage against a deeply corrupt and incompetent regime. We saw the biggest demonstration in the country unseen after 5th of October 2000 Democratic Revolution that ended Milosevic's bloody reign. So tens of thousands of Serbs were marching in the capital and across the country. Uh, Even before the mass shootings, I must say, opinion polls were not favorable to the ruling coalition. They are losing majority in Belgrade and several several other big cities ahead of the next year's local elections. And the way in which they responded to the mass shootings even further exacerbated popular discontent. Normally, uh, the Vucic regime wouldn't bulge to any of these. However, now they did. The Minister of Education already resigned and the session of Parliament was convened for next Friday. Simultaneously caving away some of the demands as well as reaction, aggressive reaction of the regime to the protests shows that the regime is losing ground more so than ever.
3: Following up to this, uh, Ilya, last question to you. I would really like to get your reaction to this uh, political backlash that uh, Serjan mentioned. So aside from being a parent, you're also an international development professional and a former journalist in Serbia with a wealth of experience. So, I mean, it strikes me that, you know, the the reaction of politicians can really make a big difference. And it strikes me how um, different, for instance, was the reaction of uh, Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand after the Christchurch massacre and how she was able to create a situation in which people got together, yeah, after a moment of of a big trauma, and this is very, you know, um, striking with the difference in the uh, Serbian case where the absence of the political leaders was uh, uh, was very clear.
5: In situations like this, I, I think this was the ultimate test that in my eyes, Serbian state authorities miserably failed. You know, when, when decision-making in the state is, is centralized in an basically authoritarian system like in Serbia, Uh, A lot starts to depend much less on the institutions and much more on the psychology of a small circle of these decision makers or a decision maker. And um, Serbian state decision makers' psychology, for some reason, did not allow them to show the highest level of, I would say, dignity and and human compassion, which were probably the most important messages that many of us parents uh, were hoping for. You know, the state officials decided it would be better if they if they talked, for example, about their own feelings, uh, the attacks they have to endure from the opposition or even some imaginary enemies. Um, And eventually to announce that they would actually put together a big pro regime rally. And actually last night, followed it by a grinning uh, Photoshop selfie uh, published by the prime minister. I mean, grinning at what exactly? You know, at, at slain children, at, at our broken spirits. Uh, to me, uh, you know, true leadership sometimes means turning down your political instincts and, and simply sharing a grief and pain with another human being, with an open heart, with, with one flower maybe, one candle, one word, one tear, one hug. That's, that's all that sometimes is expected from a real leader, I think, but, but it seems to be a little too much to ask for in our case.
2: Thank you very much, Ilya. Thank you, Sir John, uh, for this informative, insightful, and compassionate conversation.
0: Seriously, Balkans. The Beerpad Talks.
1: In early 2023, the question of foreign fighters became headline news in Serbia. Videos had been released of the Wagner Group, a notorious mercenary group fighting on behalf of the Russian government in Ukraine, as well as in many other conflicts, openly recruited Serbian volunteers. Serbian President Aleksandr Vucic released an enraged comment where he accused Wagner of illegally recruiting Serbs with a statement, why do you from Wagner call anyone from Serbia when you know that it is against our rules? However, there had been a steady trickle Of Serbian volunteers ever since 2014 joining the war in Ukraine. And at the same time, volunteers who had joined as foreign fighters ISIS um, in Syria and Iraq came from Bosnia Herzegovina, Kosovo, and Albania. So, about this phenomenon of foreign fighters, we're going to talk with two experts, Asia Metodieva, who is a researcher at the Institute for International Relations in Prague, and Kaspar Rekavec who is a fellow at the Center for Research on Extremism, C-Rex, at the University of Oslo. Both have just recently published books on foreign fighters. Asia, on foreign fighters who joined ISIS, as well as Kasper, who's written a book on those foreign uh, fighters who joined the Ukrainian war before 2022.
0: Seriously Balkans. The Biopod Talks.
1: So, Asia, Kasper, welcome to Seriously Balkans. So we're going to be talking about foreign fighters uh, in a kind of, let's say, looking back over the past decade, comparing uh, the experience of the 2010s with ISIS and the experience uh, in recent years with Ukraine. So uh, let's begin with you, Asia. Um, just published a book called Foreign Fighters and Radical Influencers, where um, you're looking at post-war radical milieus in Bosnia, Albania, and Kosovo, um, which explores the radicalization, mobilization of fighters for ISIS. Um, and you're arguing in the book that the kind of post-conflict environment uh, makes um, it more permissive for the emergence of what you call power centers, where their are radical ideas, influencers, and followers meeting. And you're exploring in your book some 400 individuals um, in, the, in the countries uh, um, and their biographies uh, in terms of their radicalization and their trajectory. So what is kind of your main takeaway? Uh, what explains their radicalization and willingness to join ISIS?
6: So let's start from the beginning of the story, 2014, uh, actually 2013, when uh, the mobilization of ISIS uh, in the campaign um, uh, became global. Uh, in those days, um, I started my I was starting my PhD, and I was thinking, okay, what is the difference between all these um, youngsters who depart from a Western Europe or the US and they they go to Syria and in Iraq and join the Islamic State, and on the other hand, people who live in the Balkans who are embedded in the local societies that these are not immigrant marginalized communities in the conventional sense. Um, and like why they decided to go to Syria. So my exploration uh, showed that there is no significant difference when it comes to the profile of these individuals. In the very same case, like uh, Western Europe, we talk about um, um, young uh, boys in um, the age between 18 and 20, 22, uh, who were um, fascinated with uh, the the propaganda that was online. They were, you know, emotionally engaged with um, with many of the narratives that were popular uh, in particular groups um, that were also close to the Salafi movement. Um, So I couldn't find, let's say, uh, a difference there. And then I started digging deeper and I realized that uh, the recent um, experience of of the Balkans when it comes to the Yugoslav wars um, actually made a difference. And um, the difference was that um, these wars actually created uh, very... A suitable environment for radical influencers uh, to emerge and to influence um, small groups of individuals. And going back um, to, let's say, the decades before uh, the Syrian war, um, we can say that um, it wasn't, let's say, ideology that mattered that much because Salafism arrived in the Balkans in the early 90s during the Bosnian war. Uh, more m- more noticeably um, it wasn't about religion uh, per se because uh, if we look at local societies we have um, extended um, uh, is- uh, Islamic uh, communities and like uh, people who are Muslims but a very very small group of individuals decided to go to Syria so what I found out is that those who wanted to reestablish the social order after the wars Salafi influencers who were heavily sponsored by countries like Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, in some parts of the Balkans, they actually had a very big impact on creating alternative narratives, in fostering alternative um, micro societies that throughout the years were embedded uh, in, uh, in the region. And what I really found interesting is that unlike the Bosnian War, that actually had a bigger impact. Uh, on, on, on the Bosnian radical milieu, as they call it, um, the case of the, the, the Albanian radical milieu is um, is more interesting from the perspective of like not having a stable consolidation throughout the years. Actually, the Albanian radical milieu was um, shaped by multiple processes of migration, uh, first in Albania after uh, the end of uh, communism and later with the Kosovo War. And because the Kosovo War was much more about nationalism than religion and ideology, that was attached to religion it was a much harder to uh, for salafi uh, communities to penetrate and to to uh, basically create a radical uh, pockets or power centers as they're called in the book
1: thanks and uh, before we turn to the to the kind of links or to to foreign fighters who've joined the war in Ukraine, um, what you know, the, the topic of foreign fighters joining ISIS was of course a hot topic, you know, eight years ago, and it kind of completely disappeared off the headlines with the collapse of ISIS and only appears occasionally, maybe with a question of the return or reintegration of some of the families. But uh, what is left of that, you know, legacy of those, you know, several hundreds of foreign fighters who've joined ISIS?
6: In the specific case of the Balkans, I would say that there um, there are a couple of of things that we we can observe now. First, we have the trauma uh, of um, people who lost their relatives, um, their children, um, people who, um, you know, never managed to stop um their children going to Syria and uh, then lost them in the war. Uh, then we have the trauma of people who returned uh, disillusioned and ready to uh, to re- to reintegrate and to move on with their lives. Uh, however, they have been stigmatized by uh, the larger society. Uh, We also have those who are still committed to uh, the values and the ideas of ISIS uh, who, however, try to not be um, in the spotlight and uh, they are adjusting uh, to what is possible in the moment. And I would say that... um, thinking of the Salafi movement and it's, um, let's say, most radical wing uh, that was um, responsible for um, mobilization and spreading propaganda uh, is very adjustable and these days is much more concerned with uh, consolidating um, followers, with consolidating uh, supporters around a certain package of, of ideas and values that Uh, as I said, that they were present before the Syrian war and they remain after that. So those who are still committed to to the ideas of ISIS are not completely gone. Uh, as you know, the Islamic State remains active in uh, in other parts of, of the world, not necessarily in, in, in the Balkans uh, through recruitment or, or committing violence. Uh, however, the support base is there. It's like a sleeping cell at the moment. And it's not um, centralized. It's very decentralized. And I would say that after 2020, following the pandemic, with this over- uh, social so, socialization online it is really really uh hard to trace um the 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 power centers at the moment
1: thanks Asya. so let's bring in kasper who um you've just published a book called foreign fighters in ukraine the brown red cocktail where you're looking at uh the many europeans who've joined the ukrainian war since 2014 so um uh, Joining from a number of countries, you're looking at Sweden, France, but also in one chapter at those who joined from the Balkans, and that's what we're going to be focusing on. I mean, in your book, you focus primarily on those who joined in the first phase of the war, so before the full-scale Russian invasion of um, February 2020. Um, mostly looking, you're mostly looking at um, Serb volunteers, but also a much small, smaller group of Croat volunteers. Um, so, what is their radicalization path, what brings them to uh, fight for these paramilitary Russian-supported groups in Luhansk or Donbas?
7: Allow me to start with the particularities and then we'll move on to generalities in this sense, because they are keys. But essentially you're right. There are two groups of people who, who went to fight in Ukraine from the broader Western Balkans, or let's say former Yugoslavia, maybe that would be a kinder, uh, description. So we're looking at Serbs and we're looking at Croats. Serbs fighting on the Russian slash inverted comma separatist side and the Croats fighting for Ukraine. And to some extent, these group, these two groups couldn't live without each other. And I'll you know explain why in a second. So the Croat group, which arrives there later, and it's smaller in 2014, when we ask about how radical they are, We go back to some of the ideas that Asia was exploring in her her answer. So essentially, you know, this is a society that partly is brutalized by the experience of the war. And yes, majority of the people brutalized by that war, especially the men, the veterans, etc., etc., they do not, they're not looking for another fight, but some of them actually are. So you do have people who fought in the 1990s in the Yugoslav wars. And also you do have people who are, for example, football hooligans of Dinamo Zagreb, which who are friends with Dinamo Kiev. And this is the link, this is the connection, which actually kind of ropes them in into the, into the conflict. On the Serbian side, the situation is slightly different, because you probably have a higher group of people who are vet, veterans with warfighting experience. You have people who are, let's say, products of the society, which, to some extent, and I'm not a Balkan Balkanist, if I could put it this way, but that's as far as I understand what's been happening in Serbia. That this glorification of the 90s, glorification of the people who fought, you know, the true pa- patriots, nationalists, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, mixed with rather precarious um, President Vučić's rather rather precarious approach to, you know, cult of violence, gangsterism, and hooliganism in the Serbian public space space does produce a group that potentially is liable to be interested in going uh to a place such as such as such as Ukraine or Russia. In their case, it's Russia or the Russian, the Russian side. Funnily enough, some of them are already in Russia when this world war starts, because they're working on construction sites, for example, for the Sochi Olympics. So, you know, there is the economic element, and it's easier to actually bring them in from Sochi into uh, Donetsk, then actually flying them, flying them from 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 Belgrade. But with the Serbs, the one question that is always repeated there, despite the fact that they are ready and willing to go, the the ones who actually went, they also ask about the money. Quite a few of them are always, you know, asking the perennial question, for which Serbia, um, to some extent, is also famous for. That you know, there is this community of these kind of dogs of war, if you like, who have been around the world even before. The Yugoslav wars of the 1990s and these guys do subscribe to that very theory so so much for the particularities now to the to the generalities in this case and I think there is one general description that we need to remember about and it's happening almost in parallel with the mobilization for ISIS in the region these guys go there because they want to play out the war the seemingly gone war the ended war the settled war from their region They want to play it out out there in Ukraine or, you know, either fighting for Russia or fighting for Ukraine. You know, they see themselves as part of a wider struggle and they see the struggle between Russia versus Ukraine as a kind of like a Serbo-Croat type of a clash. You know, they conveniently forget the, the other elements of the Yugoslav wars, but they definitely look at it as if it was as if it was, you know, a prolongation a continuation of that of that of that very of that very concept and they aim to replay it uh, out there
1: the book ends pretty much before the the full scale russian invasion but i know you've been doing considerable work since then and do you see a change in the dynamic um um scale or dynamic uh, since the beginning of the full scale russian invasion um of ukraine last year
7: i think with these two florian uh, there there's a fascinating story because these This story continues. You know, the story from 2014 is not over. And if you have Serbs or Croats still involved, and there's a lower number of them, so that's probably to answer your question, like in one sentence, there's less of these guys now. But it's the guys who had been there in 2014 in the first place. So the 2022 Serbs are back in a way. Some of them. One actually returned, especially for the conflict and died there uh one returns as a recruiter and plays a prominent role on the croat side there's a bizarre story of uh, these individuals traveling to kiev then doing a video in which they're saying they're in mariupol and they've come here to join the infamous or famous depending on how you look at it uh, as of regiment we are here there's two companies of us and now you russians you know you will see what we're made of you know, i was in contact with these guys and i remember asking them like are you in Mariupol? have you actually got through somehow and now you're going to be cut off in the siege in Azovstal?" and the answer i got nowhere in kiev and we're only fighting in kiev you know the video is the video and then we returned home after the battle of kiev and that, that, that was it so you know there are games being played around it and the people who had been involved in 2014 they returned so in a sense it's nothing new but the intensity is is new. Yet the Serbo-Croat, let's say, mobilizations aren't aren't actually any bigger. They had been bigger when the war was less intense in twenty fourteen. That's a kind of you know, I guess. A funny finding, if you could put it this way.
1: That's indeed a bit bit of a paradox. I mean, there was a lot of attention for um, foreign fighters uh, when uh, there were media reports that the Wagner Group was beginning to recruit in Serbia, had opened uh, allegedly a recruitment center. And we had a very kind of strong statement by the Serbian president, uh, Aleksandar Vucic, where he criticized the Wagner Group for breaking Serbian law. Yet at the same time, uh, have actually has there been actually a, a serious attempt to punish those who have joined uh, the war in Ukraine? Because um, as far as I know by Serbian law, this is punishable. Um, and of course, this has been applied rather rigorously when it comes to those who joined ISIS. But uh, as far as I know, much less when it comes to those who joined uh, the war in Ukraine.
7: Yeah, it's a fascinating subject, Florian, and it's classic President Vucic, so a bit of this and a bit of that. You know, the ones who went through, it's illegal in Serbia to do any foreign fighting or foreign volunteering anywhere with anybody, not just ISIS, with anyone. So even if 70% of the population thinks that we're on the side of Russia in this war, the fact that you went and fought for the Russians, technically you should go to jail upon return. You know, too few went in 2022 or too few returned in 2022-23 to test that case, you know, recently. But in 2014, the ones who went, I think, around 30 got suspended sentences. And, you know, it was pretty pretty ironic that there were individuals who had really pretty nasty things to say about the then Belgrade government. They were coming back and they got like, you know, a slap on the wrist and a year and a half of suspended sentence. So
6: I wanted to actually engage a bit more with this paradox that we observed that in 2014, there were more people from the Balkans going to Ukraine. Uh, and two thousand and twenty two seems that it's not uh, let's say that there is no such a big group of people. So I will only um like bring this hypothesis, and of course, we can uh, we can leave it here or talk about it more. But uh, it seems to me that uh, Serbia is in a very um like it's playing its usual geopolitical game, you know, between the EU and the West and Russia but it seems to me that uh serbia is also um with this statement that vucic offered over, although it was uh, very late uh um, after the, the invasion um that it it's really trying to discourage at least uh in in a sense of political rhetoric uh when it comes to sentences of course as as kasper mentioned uh, we we didn't see much uh, happening after 2014 and my expectation is that uh, with the latest uh, mobilization efforts, uh, there won't be uh, more cases of people going to prison after returning uh, to Serbia. Uh, nevertheless, it is interesting that um, despite all the narratives in favor of Russia, uh, there is still this game in play uh, that is trying to discourage uh People uh, from becoming foreign fighters. Uh, whether this is done through enhanced security and intelligence, whether this is done in uh, in in other in other ways. We, we can, of course, speculate. Uh, but um, what I find interesting is that in the beginning of 2022, if you look at Telegram channels, there wasn't much of um, mobilization efforts from pro-Russian forces in the region. However, since the beginning of 2023, I would say uh, there is more talk about how um, Serbs can support Russia. So what I I will be very interested in seeing in the next year is whether these attempts, these mobilization narratives will be more successful and will draw more people from Serbia and, and the region.
1: Thanks. So to follow up on that remark, Garcia, how would you compare what you've seen in terms of these, uh, you know, the the foreign fighters going from Serbia to Ukraine and the foreign fighters which went from Kosovo, Bosnia, Albania to join ISIS? What are the parallels? What are the distinctive differences?
6: There was uh, this um, mission that they uh, had and they returned with uh, back in the Balkans to bring their families, uh, their their wives and their children uh, to to Syria, where the idea was to establish the uh, so-called ISIS caliphate. Um, So this was the role of the veterans. They actually had much more ideological role, a role of um, building trust and showing trust in the idea of the caliphate uh, and less of a role in terms of uh, participation in the battlefield or uh, showing the uh, the, um, the militant aspect of of the war in in propaganda, so uh, these were the 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 so called the old generation Salafis. These were people who were initially inspired by the Arab Mujahideen in the Bosnian War, uh, and who later on. Some of them uh, had the chance to go and study um, either in um, Saudi Arabia or, or Qatar or, or other countries in the Gulf uh, and the Middle East. And this um, had, um, how to say, it, it created space for them to be um, influencers at the local level uh but when it comes to the combat aspect um we could see more militant rows of people who did not have previous experience uh in in the Yugoslav wars this was a generation that let's say in the in the mid 90s and late, late late 90s were in their teenage years therefore they didn't have the chance as uh, kaspar also pointed Uh, to to do what they wanted to do at home, which means to protect the community they felt belonging to. And the Syrian war offered this opportunity for them to see themselves as belonging to a larger community um, um, based on on their their identity. And this uh, was, let's say, Maybe the, the biggest difference between the two um, the two uh, conflicts that attract foreign fighters that we we saw less of an importance uh, of the veterans in in the Syrian conflict the veterans from the Yugoslav Wars compared to now in Ukraine
1: Thanks. Slowly, it's time for us to, to wrap up our conversation, um, but I would maybe ask both of you um, to reflect on what this, you know, what this recruitment tells us about the societies and the countries themselves. I mean, is are these, you know, in a certain way, fringe individuals um, who are in a certain way irrelevant or should we think of them as, um, you know, a, a larger, you know, a, a larger social question um, in the countries from which they're coming from, which, um, you know, is worth being considered beyond the individual biographies of those who made the journey either to Ukraine or to ISIS?
7: Well, I would say this is an indication of the fact that all is not well in the region. I mean, it's it's a cliche to say this in a way, but the fact that the ones we're looking at, they go somewhere to basic because they see themselves as participants in the local struggle. You know, this is bad, to put it mildly, that that it still fuels this rivalry and this, this conflict that probably has not been sorted, if I could put it this way. It's actually by some people being replayed somewhere else, even if it's not such a huge group of people, it is just worrying because it taps into uh, all the radical radicalisms, the political radicalisms of, of the strategic sort, which are now basically dancing around Bosnia. Uh, so uh, that is something that we probably
1: should be worrying about. Mm-hmm. thanks Kasparasi is that also your take I would say that
6: you know like the local societies um, and political elites should reflect on um, what's the role of these groups uh, and I would say that both the Salafi movement and the far right which uh, uh, is basically the milieu of the foreign, foreign fighters going to Ukraine um, both uh, they become pillars of the local societies throughout the years the way the Salafi movement uh Uh, is embedded in the, in the Bosnian, um, Political, social, and and religious life, and it has its place. The same way the far right uh, has become normalized uh, and has become, let's say, uh, linked to to the mainstream politics in Serbia and um, I would say Republika Srpska as, as well. So the far right in most uh, in most Balkan countries is not a re- relevant political actor. Neither the Salafi movement is a, is a relevant social or religious and political actor. But the boundary that separates uh, them from from uh, political the political agenda of the mainstream and the mainstream political parties is becoming thinner in particular moments, uh, and especially when it comes uh, when it comes to conflicts, geopolitical situations uh, like uh, the one that uh, the, the 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 war in Ukraine brought. Uh, It is a big question for local societies to decide what is the place of these local communities and movements.
1: Yes, I think that's a very, very important thought about the large implications. Thank you very much, Rasia. Thank you very much, Kasper, for for joining uh, Seriously Balkans. And of course, uh, both of you have written important books on the topic, which I can highly recommend. Foreign Fighters and Radical Influencers, uh, as well as Foreign Fighters in Ukraine. Both were published with Routledge and are available now.
0: Seriously Balkans. The B-A-Pod Talks.
2: Florian. Can you tell us what are your main takeaways from our talk with Ilya and Srdjan on the mass shootings in Serbia?
1: What really impressed me with the conversation is, you know, how careful we have to be to draw general conclusions from two such horrific incidents as we've witnessed in Serbia recently. So we should be careful not to extrapolate too much from it. I think two things, though, struck me uh, in the conversation. The first one is the kind of larger Uh, endorsement or promotion of violence in the public sphere, in particular in mass media over the last decades. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that it causes the violence, but it certainly creates a social environment where violence is seen as being uh, more acceptable, more uh, permissive, and, and this certainly creates a social context which could, and I emphasize, could explain such incidents. And I think the second point which struck me, is, uh, which both mentioned, is the level of kind of lack of a kind of proper response by the government to the incidents in the sense that there's not a kind of emphasis on a security calls for death penalty, but kind of not understanding the social implications and the social context in which this takes place. Uh, And that, of course, is very troubling for society coming to grips with those events. So now let me turn it over to to both of you, Tena, Damir. What are your kind of observations from our conversation we had about those recent books and the ongoing research on foreign fighters, both to ISIS as well as to Ukraine?
2: Well, yes. One of the first things that struck me was that these societies in the Balkans that were exposed to violence in the 1990s, that they are not actually seen as being more vulnerable to the phenomenon of foreign fighters. And the second thing that sort of uh, I remembered is that uh, this intensity is is not as vivid this time around with the new war starting in 2022, but rather there was more presence of foreign fighters um, previously in 2014, during the first part of the conflict.
3: Indeed, and these seem to be very positive developments. Uh, however, I also think that from the conversation it emerged that uh, we shouldn't be complacent about these dynamics. Um, What uh, stuck with me is also that uh, um, it seems that since the beginning of 2023, there is more talk on Telegram, on other social media and channels about how Serb foreign fighters can support Russia. And uh, if you uh, put that in connection with the fact that the far right is increasingly being normalized in Serbia and Republika Srpska, especially in the region, I think there are some grounds for concern, or if nothing else, uh, to really keep the attention high on this topic.
1: Indeed. Thanks, Tina. Thanks, Damir. I hope you enjoyed our second episode, and I hope you'll join us again for future episodes of Seriously Balkans.
0: You've been listening to Seriously Balkans, the beer pack Talks. This podcast is produced by the Balkans in Europe Policy Advisory Group, a joint project of the European Fund for the Balkans and the Centre for Southeast European Studies of the University of Graz. Find out more about our research, analysis and advocacy at www.bapag.eu.